Israel is a reflection. Isn't it easy to read the Bible and go, oh, Israel, you're so stupid. We all do that, right? But what we need to see, what we need to realize is we are over and just like them, over and over and over and over. God is good and we, he gives us his covenants and we say, yes, we'll do our part of this thing. And then we turn around and we're worshiping a bull somewhere else. And God wants to reveal himself and his glory to the world. And he's called us through the grace of his cross to be a part of his work in this world. And we just forget and we leak and we don't. If someone was reading our story, they'd be doing the same thing we do when we read about Israel in Exodus. They'd be pulling their hair out going, ah, why are you so stupid? I hope, and we've only got, look, we've only got, I think, three weeks, including this Sunday, we've got three weeks left in Exodus. I hope it's doing in you what it's doing in me. I just, I, I'm a reformed, soteriological grace guy, amen? So sometimes when I see my own sin in the mirror, I go, eh, it's all right, we got grace, woo! But Exodus has has turned something in me. I want, I just want so desperately to be a better person, to reflect God better than I have. And some of you, I hope you're saying, well, Brent, if you don't reflect them, I'm a turd. We all need to get better, amen? Our world is sick. We are dying before our very eyes, we're watching civilization crumble into anarchy. There is no hope other than Jesus Christ. And who has he placed here to reflect his glory? Whose face should be shining with his glory? Ours. But we just, you know, we forget. We leak. We do what we want. But God is calling us through the narrative of the Exodus back into a clearly identified people that belong to him. And how will they know when our hands are on his plow doing the work that he has called us to? Our work never saves us. Jesus saves us, amen? But he has called us to a work. We are to be identified with Christ. And there's a way in which our lives show and share that gospel that we know and proclaim. No, don't start quoting St. Francis of Assisi, because that ain't what I'm saying. Exodus chapter 33, 34. That's where we're at today. Here's the big idea. There's a tension we're going to see the tension clearly in verses 6 through, uh, in verses of chapter 34, 6 through 7. The tension is this. God's a God who loves his people, saves his people, delivers his people. 
but he's also a God. He's a God who says, I'm going to go, I'm going to be with you. I want to be, I want my presence to be among you. But he can't stand their sin. This is the tension that ultimately we all know is satisfied and comes to fruition in the cross of Jesus Christ. But feel the tension this morning. And let that tension draw you unto himself like, like you have not allowed him to draw you before. We've, we've got to have that, that expectation in us, that anticipation as a deer pants for water. I want you. I need you. Have that this morning. Let that tension show you just how serious sin is to God. He's not going to share himself or his people with a gold cow. He's just not going to do it. I should probably pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for first service. Father, thank you for what you're doing in me. But you know I have no ability and no power to do this well. We need your spirit to make your word alive to us. Please do that again this morning. For your people need your word. It is in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 33. God's people are in the Sinai Peninsula. But it's time for them to go. The Lord said to Moses, depart. It's time to go. Hey, it's been a great time here. Other than that golden cow thing. I mean, I'm speaking from the mountain. My people know. They, they've seen... The plagues, they've seen the exodus, they've seen the Red Sea, they've seen the pillar of fire and cloud. They've heard my voice. We've got a priesthood that's developed. We've got a tent where my spirit, my presence abides. Right? A lot of things have happened here in this peninsula. But God, something I tell the elders all the time. You know, we've got four points there. Our vision series coming up. Love, devotion, passion, legacy, those are not just words that look good on shirts. We are trying to move people. And most of the time, what a leader has to do is he has to move people where they don't want to go. God now, the ultimate leader, is saying, hey, we could all sit here and be happy and us four and no more and we could dwell here, but that was never my plan. I've got a purpose, I've got a plan, and I've got to move you from where you're at now to where I have you going. Look, if you ever in your Christian walk feel tension that Scripture will bring into your life, it is a good Tension, because the tension is the way God moves us from where we are to where we want to be. We get comfortable where we are, amen? God wants to move us. God says, depart. Would the people have left? No, God, God moves them. Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now notice, and it's subtle, it's nuanced, but... Did Moses bring the people out of Egypt? I guess you, in a way you could say he did. But who was really behind the plagues? Who called Moses in Exodus chapter 3? And Mo Moses gave five different excuses, including just pick somebody else. I don't want to do it. 
It was God that was behind the exodus. It was God that brought the plagues. It was God that brought the people out through Moses. Moses can raise his staff at a Red Sea all he wants to, but if God doesn't make the waters part, the waters aren't parting, amen? But notice God's language here. It's time for you to go and take your people with you. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to them, uh, I will give it. So God, here it is. I've made a covenant, and I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But right now, at this mountain that I have made holy in meeting with you and speaking with you, it's time for you to leave this place and take your people with you. I will send an angel before you. Now, who is this angel? We're not going to belabor because I've only got 39 minutes because we've talked about this angel before because this is not the first time this angel has been here. This angel is back in chapter 23 with a pillar of fire and smoke. This angel was back in 14. This angel was all the way back. This angel's been with God's people all this time as, as, as a, a, a silent backdrop into the story. We know this, this, is, this angel is is a pre-incarnate cameo appearance of Christ himself. This scarlet thread of salvation that weaves throughout the entire Old Testament. And ultimately, God becomes flesh and dwells among us. Uh, he lives the perfect life that we do not. He fully reveals himself in the incarnation that we know God becomes flesh. This angel spoke from the burning bush in chapter 3 as if he were Yahweh himself. And that's why we believe this is a Christophany, a pre-cameo appearance of Christ and not just some Michael or, or some other angel. Christ is there behind the scenes waiting for the perfect time in history where the Father fully reveals him and the great salvation that he brings to humanity. So God says, time for you to go. And of course, God's, God has a plan. He's always had a plan. And God is good for, to his promises. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to send my angel. He's going to help you along the way. And I will drive out, underline that word, drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and any other kind of ites that are there. God says, I will drive out. Now, this isn't a big part of uh, the story yet. When we get to Joshua and the conquest, it becomes a bigger part of the story. But I do want to make this point now because it is in the text. And people have lost their ever-loving minds. We live in a world where our level of self-righteousness is at an all-time high. Look at the text. I will, God speaking, says, I will drive out. There's a land that I've promised to give to your fathers. And right now there are other people in the land. But I'm going to drive them out. And I'm going to give that land to you. <gasps> That's not fair. How 
dare God do that? Number one, who in God's name told you life was fair? Right? There's a reason we have this term, snowflake. Life is nothing but adversity. I know we have tricked ourselves by looking at screens constantly all day long, but understand this if you haven't learned it already. Life is adversity. Since the fall in the garden, it is thorns and thistles. We are walking uphill. And and so... When life finally doesn't give you what you think you're owed, you're going to realize life is adversity and nobody owes you anything. That's good preaching whether you like it or not. But our level of self-righteousness is so high. We're so appalled. Everybody, this is not a, a, a Republican, Democrat. This is not a political party thing. This is a everybody in the world right now. Self-righteous, all-time high. We are constantly offended by everything. Somebody tried to, a couple months ago, somebody sent me a video of some sports guy saying, you know what, we're, we're, we should, it's time. It's time to cancel Mount Rushmore. It's just time to cancel it. Some of your sphincters just got tight. What's he going to say? <laughs> And the reason given was just that self-righteous, the pinnacle of smug self-righteousness. Why should we cancel it? Because, well, we stole that land from the Indians. Now, if you got Indian blood in you, my mom's side, they're all Cherokee. Uh, so I'm with you, so I can say this, and don't you send me no hate mail. <laughs> but there's a fallacy. Our self-righteousness, there's a fallacy in it. The fallacy is, when Westerners finally got over here to the Americas, they found utopia. There was no problems. Everybody was just innocently living in glorious perfection. And we came over and we took. We did come over and take. But guess what? When we came over here... There were tribes and nations already existing for hundreds of years that were fighting one another, beating up one another, stealing land from one another, and even oh, oh, enslaving one another. Yeah, we took that land from the Sioux, but guess what? The Sioux took it from the Cherokee. And before that, the Cherokee took it from the Apache. And on and on, down it goes because every generation and every nation are sinners and we ruin everything. All of us, we're all part of the problem. But the self-righteous want to sit up high and judge, not ever realizing they would be just as evil and just as wicked as the next. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites are not perfect, precious, innocent people. They're killing their babies. They're sacrificing them to, to pagan gods. They're killing and enslaving one another. They're terrible, just like everybody else. And here's even the bigger point. Well, it's still not fair, so they're bad people. Why should God just get rid of, drive them out to give this land to his people? Who does the land belong to? 
Do you really think we own any square inch of this earth? We are nothing but stewards. It all belongs. We don't own the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns the cattle and he owns the hills. It is his to give. And even if you hate this, watch me smile as I say it. He is good to take the land from them to fulfill a promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's good to do it. Because it belongs to him. And he gets to do what he wants, amen? I will drive them out. Verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. This good land I have made and created for you. Yeah, there's other people there now, but don't worry about them. I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to set you up as my people. This land flowing with milk and with honey. But here's a, here's a twist in the story. Here's where the tension begins. Because God has started a tent project. We studied the tent of meeting, also called the tabernacle. Because God... Ah! Because God screams like a girl. God has already revealed his desire is for his presence to be with his people. And the people said, yes, that's what we want too. This, these directions, this law you've given us, these directions you've given us, we will follow. And then there's the bull. And then God says, okay, time for you to go. But I will not go up among you. It's time for you to go. Take your people. I'm still going to keep my promise. The land's yours. Don't worry about that. I'm going to send my angel to help you. I'm going to drive out those people. But I'm not. The tent project's canceled. Yes, you've built it. Yes, we're going to see Moses in and out of it here in a second. But don't take the tent with you. Because my presence is not going. Why? Why? Why should our sin frighten us when God reveals it to us in the mirror? Why can we not just go, ah, it's not a big deal, I got the cross. Look at the cross and know how much God hates sin. He destroyed his own son because of it. He hates sin. He hates it. And if God hates sin, we should hate sin too. Every little bitty sin in us. Can I just be honest with you? And this is a, this is a, some of you are going to think bad about me, but I don't care. I've probably said more cuss words in the last two years than in my entire Christian life. I was raised, cuss words are bad, you don't say them. So when I came to Christ, I was like, ah, but then I became reformed. (laughs) And I'm like, ah, cuss words are no big deal. So I just, you know, and I started saying them just here and there to be funny. Because I thought, you know, no, but pastors aren't supposed to cuss. But I've noticed over the last year, now I'm not saying them to be funny. They're just coming out. 
all right? And I'm not saying because it's I'm just, man, these little things, right? It's the, it's the little foxes that, that spoil the vine. That's what the scripture teaches. I God hates it. I don't want impurity in my heart. I don't want impurity in my mouth. I'm, I'm, God, show me every little thing. Help me. Give me the strength to rip it out because I know you hate sin. And I want to be closer to you. So I got to get rid of the sin. God hates sin. Sin's a big deal. I'm not going. You take your people and you go out. But I'm not going with you. For you, uh, lest I consume you. God hates sin. God's like, look, if I go with you, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> That's what he says. Right? He's the, his holiness is the raging fire that purifies all that it touches. God says, I can't go with you. Because you would be dead. God said that. For you are a stiff-necked people. Now remember the whole narrative of Exodus. They were slaves. God sets them free from slavery. But he makes sure they know. In, you're free now, but in order to maintain your freedom, in order for true blessing and flourishing to occur, there's a way in which you now should live. Freedom costs. We're not free to do whatever we want. We're not free to live like uh, heathens. We're not free to hedonism. No, we're free to God to follow his ways and receive the blessings for that obedience. That's how freedom is maintained, to follow God. But God says, but you are a stiff-necked people. The yoke of my words. When I first, when you saw all I did, and then I gave you my law, and, and come on. I love Romans 12, uh, verse, you know, his, his law, it's, it's, his morality's not, it's so simple. Don't lie, right? This, I've given you this, this way to maintain and grow in your freedom by honoring me and, and being blessed by me through your obedience. And I'm trying to steer. And you said you would. You, you gave your word back. We're going to do everything you said. We're going to honor our parents. We're not going to cheat on our spouses. It's so simple. God says, as I'm, as I'm trying to lead you into my ways. You're stiff-necked. You just, you just want to go where you want to go. You just want to do what you want to do. That's what it means to be stiff-necked, to, to take God off his throne and to put ourselves there. We're in charge. We want to make the commands. We don't understand your law. Your laws are so hard to understand. Don't cheat on your wife. So hard to understand. We're going to make our own. Because obviously you must want us to be happy. We know the best way to happiness, not you. It's what we, we never say these things out loud, but this is the way we justify all of our sin. God says, I'm directing you, but you're, you're yanking and you're pulling. You're stiff-necked people. I can't go with you because you would be dead. He goes on to reiterate it. When the people heard this, disaster. how many of you are sitting there thinking, 
this is heavier than I realized. Brent, I've heard, I mean, we talk a lot about sin and we preach against sin and we talk about repentance, but, but this is heavy right here in Exodus. I mean, God is telling his people that he's saved and delivered. He's not going with them because he would kill them because of their sin. It is, as the Bible says, a disastrous word. The people, when they hear it, they know. And think about it. Come on, Christian man, Christian woman. Is there any of us in this room who have tasted of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What, what, could, what is the worst thing you could ever hear? Chrysostom, some 1,600 years ago, said this is worse. This is a disaster. And yeah, the people mourn because this is worse than a thousand hells. For God to look at you and say, I'm not going with you anymore. Can you, I mean, oh, that's how much you should hate sin. Sin separates us from God. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We should be deathly afraid to ever hear the words, all right, you're on your own. I'm out of this thing. That is a disastrous word. And the people mourn. And they began to take off their ornaments, their, their jewelry, and the ways that they have uh, made themselves ornate to show their, their, their new wealth that Egypt gave them so that they would leave and the plagues would stop. Already the people are very proud. And they've added things to their clothing with the gold and the silver they were given to, to distinguish themselves. But when God says you're on your own, they begin to take these things off. And they begin to weep and they begin to mourn. God reiterates, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So the people stripped off. Now, we're going to skip ahead to verse 12, but look at verse 11 quickly. Here's the context. Here's the tension. God loves, saves, delivers his people, but he can't be with them lest they die. Verse 11, just real quick. Then the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was there. When you get to Judges, when you get to uh, the conquest of Canaan, Joshua and Caleb are the only one of the spies. We have a, one of our staff values here is good spies. Some of you have heard, yes, we can. Right, this is, Joshua is here during this whole time, which is where his faith comes from later on in the book for when everyone else is saying we can't do this. He's like, no, God said we could do it, so we can do it. Joshua's here, so make note of that. But also, God spoke to Moses face to face like friends. We're going to read verses 12 all the way to the end, and I'm going to bring out four big ideas, and then we're going to move to chapter 34. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 
And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Four things. And what I ended on last time, I'm actually going to begin with this time because I think it'll make this point a little more clear. Because some of you might be saying, what in the world is going on here? There is a couple places in the Old Testament. It's these couple places that cause some local pastors to say, ah, let's just not study the Old Testament anymore. We don't need it. It's all about Jesus anyway. But we need the Old Testament, amen? It's, 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 it's the shadow that makes Christ even more glorious when we do realize who he is from the New Testament. We need the Old There's a couple places in the old, though, where it looks like God's having a conversation with somebody, and it looks like God hasn't made up his mind very well. Sometimes it looks like God uh, can change his... There's even a place in the Bible where it says he, he changed his mind. There's a place in the Bible where God told one king he was going to die, and the king prayed, and he's like, oh, okay, I'll give you another 15 years. So what is going on in these places? Does God change his mind? Really? Of course not. The first thing I learned in Hermeneutics 101, in my undergraduate program, this wasn't even seminary level thinking. The first thing I learned is if you're ever in a place in the Bible, well, two things. If you're ever reading something in the Bible and you don't understand, the problem is not the Bible. The problem is your understanding. All right? And the hermeneutical principle from 101, when you're reading something that is unclear in Scripture, don't make up new theology. Interpret the verses through the 99.9% of everything that is spoken with incredible clarity. Amen? Not everything in the Bible is confusing. 99% of it is very articulate and very clear. So it's those scriptures that help us interpret these uh, harder scriptures to understand. There is a system of theological thought out there taken from a place like this where it looks like God's going, "Ah, I'm not really sure which way I'm going to go yet. It's called open theism or openness theology. The root of open theology comes from the die-hard belief that we're in control through free will. Remember just a few weeks ago we talked about some idols that our nation particularly has. We talked about love and nationalism and 
Free will is one of them. Some people want to believe more in the free will of man than in the sovereignty of God. And these things are not in tension with one another. God has given moral. We're not free will's not free will. I can't be a horse. I can't do whatever I want. But God has given a level of will where I can choose to follow him or not follow him. Uh, fall into blessings through obedience or curses through disobedience. I chose what cereal I had for breakfast this morning. But God is sovereign over all things. And this stubborn, this stubborn faith in free will causes them to even go further and say, therefore God must not, there's some things God doesn't know. God doesn't know the future. He can't know the future. He's waiting on us to see what free will choices that we're going to make. Now, if you're sitting here going, well, who could believe that? Tell me about it. It's crazy. God is sovereign. God has always had a plan. God is working out his plan. God invites us to be part of his plan, but the plan is a predetermined end, and God settled it before the foundations of the world. I mean, if you don't believe that, why? What? What kind of God would you want to pray to who doesn't know the future? Hey, Jeremiah, sorry, I don't know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. <laughs> it's crazy. Open theism is heresy. It is. Psalm 139, let's look at verse 4 and verse 16 quickly. She's got, I need you to know. I need you to know that you know that you know you are saved by God's grace. You didn't seek him. He reached down and snatched you from the fires of hell. He put a new song in your heart. He calls you because he loved you. Now you love him. And he's got a predetermined end for all of his people. Psalm 139, even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O oh Lord, you had no idea I was going to make the right choice. O oh Lord, you know it all together. Look at so the whole psalm. And I can choose every third verse in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation. It all says the same thing. He's in control. When he's saying things we don't understand, when it seems like he's saying things where he doesn't know, that's for our benefit. He's leading us somewhere through the questions that he asks of us. Uh, 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. <sighs> I'm trying to be a better person, but I just have to say, as I look straight into the camera, if you are an open theist, you are an idiot. <laughs> it's not biblical. In fact, it's anti-biblical. Point number one, ready? Look at verse 13. Why is God speaking to Moses like this? Because it brings Moses to this place, the place where God wants all of us. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. God, you're saying you're going to leave me? 
You're saying this is my people. Look, he reminds them there in verse 13. Hey, this is your people. This is your thing. You called me. I didn't even want to go. You can't throw this thing on me. God brings Moses to the end of himself. Isn't it true? Sometimes we get a little knowledge. We get a little information. Oh, oh yeah, I can lead that Bible study. Yeah. I know that book of the Bible. I've read it three times. I, yeah. We're exhaustive. Sometimes we just get a little swagger. You know, when God called me to plant this church here, I had already been in ministry for about a decade. So I came here. I had read all the books. I was so confident. Man, we're going to be running a thousand people in probably a year. We still don't run a thousand people. It's been 15 years. We get a little swagger in our step. You know what God loves to do? He loves to hammer our swagger out of us. When God tells Moses, you go and I'm not coming, Moses realizes, oh, this stick in my hand has no power without Yahweh behind it. What am I supposed to do? These are your people. Brings us to the end. Man, God has brought me to the end of myself so many times. And if you're in the room and you're there, just whether it's your marriage, whether it's your kids, whatever circus, maybe it's your career path you thought was going to go this way and, and you've taken a, a dirt road. Listen, there is pain in it, but that pain is purifying and that pain is good pain because it brings us to the end of ourselves where we humbly on our knees look to him and say, okay, obviously I've been getting this wrong. I can't do without you. Show me your ways. Any Rich Mullins fan in here? There's a song called Hard to Get. It's a beautiful song. One of the lyrics in that song is, I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. This is why God is speaking to Moses the way he's speaking to, to bring Moses to the place where Moses needs to be, to be God's man, to actually take these people to the promised land. I can't do this. Show me your ways. These are your people. I'm not in control. I don't have the answers. You do. Oh, Yahweh God, show me your ways. No one's ever sat down, God, and said, let me tell you a little something you may have not have thought about. It's his ways we need. God brings, look, that's not a bad place to be. That's the best place to be. I'm done trusting myself. I'm done with my stupid swagger. God, show me your ways. Number two, look at verse 18. God, Moses said, please show me your glory. Remember, we unpacked glory a few weeks ago. Moses says, I want to know the weightiness of who you are. Show me the deep, heavy truth of who you are. That's the question. And show me your glory. It's what the word glory means. 
Show me the weightiness and the heaviness of who you are. And what is God's response? I will show you my goodness. I'm going to drive out the Canaanites. I will show you my goodness, God says. Now, God could have chosen any attribute in and of himself to reveal to Moses. He could have said, I will show you my mercy. Because God is merciful, amen? I will show you my omniscience, open theist, because God knows everything. I could show you my love, because God is love, amen? But the one thing God says when Moses says, show me your glory, he says, I will show you my goodness. Each and every person in this room, we all face trials of varying degrees. But in every trial, you might find yourself, because life's not fair, it's adversity, it's uphill all the way. Don't forget it. But God is with you, and God is good. In our adversity, God is good. You know, you know why God didn't say, I'll show you my love? Because people can be loving, but not be good. Hitler loved his country. He loved Germany. He loved the motherland. But he wasn't good. God says, you want to see my glory? I'm going to show you my goodness. God, of course he's love. Of course he's more. Of course he's gracious. But to the bottom of it all, he, everything he, God doesn't do what's right in our eyes. What he does is right because he is Good. Brent, I just, I've lost loved ones. Brent, the pain is so real. I know, man, life has so many dark, unbearable days that we don't think sometimes we're going to make it. But at the bottom of it all, God is good. You want to be closer to God? You want your faith to explode? Believe that he's good. And he does have, he knows the future. He does have plans. We've got an entire Old Testament that proves it. An entire New Testament that seals it. Point number three. Or actually point number four, but I switched them around. Look at verse 20. And this is just a theological note. He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now look back up at verse 11. And God spoke with Moses face to face as friends. Okay, so wow. Bible contradicts itself. Let's close it up and go home. That's what people would like for you to believe. But again, the problem's not with the Bible. The problem's with our understanding. How do we reconcile this seeming contradiction? Well, some people like to make the point up in verse 11 that that is the angel of the Lord meeting with Moses in the temple. So that's uh, a pre-cameo appearance of God in flesh. So this face-to-face -face communication uh, is, is rectified. But I, I don't think that is the case with the glory of God and the tent of meeting and the smoke just like on the mountain that we, we kind of skipped over. I think the better answer is... A little word called 
anthropomorphism. Everybody got that, right? Did you write it down? Did you spell it right? (laughs) Anthropomorphism. There are ways in which God communicates and says things to us that are for our benefit, and he says them in a way in which we can understand. I think the face-to-face language in verse 11 is showing the closeness and the intimacy of the relationship. Because here's what I know about God. He is spirit, the Bible says, which means he doesn't have a face. Which means he doesn't look down at verse 22 and 23. His hand, his back, his face. Anthropomorphism is when God speaks in ways that help us understand because we have backs and faces and hands. The point is the closeness, the his coming to Moses, the intimacy in their communication. But God doesn't have a back or hands, but he gives himself these characteristics to help us understand the intimacy of the moment. Let me give you a few other examples that may help you more. When God says, I'm going to give you shelter under my wing, is God a bird? No. Does God have wings? No. But is something intimate and glorious being communicated? Yes. That's the point with the wing. That's the point with the face. When Jesus does become flesh, though, we see the face of God in the face of Christ. Amen? God is a strong tower. Is God a building? No, but you get the point. Amen? Chapter 34. We're going to end in verses 6 and 7. But just look down really i got three minutes. Look down at the covenant renewed. So what does God say? Of course God's going to go with his people. He has this conversation with Moses to bring Moses onto his face and to bring Moses in closer relationship with him so that God can continue to take his people to the promise that he will give them. So, restores covenant. Look at, and man, there's so much here. Just notice verse 15 and 16. The Bible uses the word whore twice. I really wanted to preach that. I'm going to do my best to kill all self-righteousness. I'm just going to do my best. But notice verse 17 down through. He just goes, it's the list of directions he's already given. Hey, keep the Feast of Weeks. Hey, keep the Sabbath. Hey, redeem the firstborn. All that stuff we talked about in those directions after the Ten Commandments. God is reestablishing them in his people. This is part of the covenant. Do you want me to stay with you? You want my presence with you? Get rid of the sin. Start living the way I've called you to live. Why is this important? Write this down in your Bible. These are laws that protect the identity of his people. You're going to meet, when I bring you into this new land, you're going to meet a lot of other people. Don't start meshing and taking their ways and taking their gods and whoring yourself like they whore themselves to to gods that aren't even real. I'm your God. I brought you out of Egypt, Egypt, and this is how people will know you are different. This is how you will be distinct among the nations. These directions are given. God's not just randomly throwing out rules and laws. 
Why do we have a New Testament that makes commands? Every time you say, well, the law doesn't matter anymore. The New Testament makes a lot of commands. It's still important how our marriages look in the New Testament. Adultery is still a sin. There's, there's commands. Why are they important? Because they protect, when we follow them, our identity in Christ. And what does God want? What, what should be reflected from us when we're spending the time with God, getting rid of our sin and crying out, show me your ways, show me your glory. When Moses comes down off the mountain in chapter 34, his face is glowing in the radiance of that intimate relationship, that time he has spent with the Lord. Why, why are the Ten Commandments still important? They don't save us. The cross of Christ saves us. He lived the perfect life. He died in our place for our sins. But why should we still not lie? Why is it important? Because our face, we're called Christians. Christ is in the name of what we call ourselves. We are to reflect His glory to a lost world, a hopeless world. Verse 6, chapter 34, let's end. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We began with the revealed tension. God loves, God saves, but he hates sin. He cannot let the guilty go, go without punishment. Now this tension is, it culminates in the gospel of Christ. Because who came to pay that debt? Jesus did. He conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave through his resurrection. But God still calls us into, through his grace, covenant relationship with him, where obedience to his ways are rewarded with blessing and flourishing, and our faces shine so that others may see him. And know this grace that he has given. I want to end this way. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14. And I want you to, you've heard this before. When we were in Haggai, uh, we spent some time here. Uh, we called that series Rebuilding the Ruins. That was COVID had hit. We couldn't meet for several weeks. We were doing it online. We went through Haggai, Rebuilding the Ruins. It was prophetic in many ways. But notice something in here. And I'm talking to gospel, right? A lot of Armenians in here, we love you, we're glad you're here, but all my Reformed people, 
right? We, we know we're saved by grace. We know it's the work of Christ, but there's still a calling, an upward, higher calling to life, and the land doesn't get healed unless we do it. If my people hear God speak, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, show me your ways, and pray, And seek my face. Show me your glory. Turn. Right? Repentance is a real thing. The golden calf must be destroyed. The little words, the whatever it is. God hates sin. If my people called by my name will not just show me your ways, but turn from their wicked ways. That's why there's no such thing as a homosexual Christian. I know there's this whole movement where, ah, well, it's not the same anymore, and God says it's a, anything God calls sin, we are to return from. Not to say God's okay with it now. Repentance is what makes us Christians. Repentance is what reflects the glory of God. If I've got all with my brother, the Bible says, hey, don't come and worship me. Go get things right with your brother first. Then come. Turn. From your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. That last thing is what's important to me. And heal the land. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you change lives. And changed lives lead to changed families. And changed families leads to a changed nation. God, may we not just provide lips. We love you. We're here. We love you. And we know you are slow to anger and so forgiving. Father, sometimes it causes us to not see sin as seriously as you do. Forgive us and help us not only see sin in our lives but may we repent and turn from our sin that our lives will continue to change. In turn, our families will continue to change. And in turn, our nation will continue to change. It is in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.